When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, I'm Meg Teets and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and confide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 108 of the show, and before we begin this week's discussion, I have some exciting news to share with you guys in the community of awesomes. Sorta Awesome is now part of the Wondery Podcast Network. So we are part of the same network that brings you Locked Up Abroad, Sword and Scale, Straight Talk with Ross Matthews, and of course, our beloved The Popcast, as well as tons of other amazing podcasts. And they are now bringing you Sorta Awesome. So as part of us joining the Wondery Network, we would love it if you would take just a few minutes for us to get to know you a little bit better with a quick survey. It really does take just a few minutes of your time and you can totally do it straight from your phone. It would really help us out if you will take just a few minutes to go to wondery.com slash survey to fill out that survey. You can support Sorta Awesome by going to wondery.com slash survey. So today I'm joined by my longtime dear friend and co-host and the host of the Smartest Person in the Room podcast, Laura Tremaine. Hello, Laura. How are you? Hello. It's so good to be back after our long summer break. I know. I know. I'm so excited to have you back. And we are going to be digging in and talking about one of our favorite topics to talk about both on the show and off the air, and that is books and reading. Now, Laura just talked all things books and reading for 2017 so far on Smartest Person in the Room, episode 21, with her friend Stephanie Newman Smith, who's in her real life book club. But you guys, Laura reads so much that even though she just was talking about books on Smartest Person in the Room, she has even more to share with us. I cannot wait to hear what you have for our books and reading episode here on Sorta Awesome. Yeah, it's going to be good. I have lots of words as usual. <laughs> Now, before we dig into all of this very awesome book talk, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our Awesomes of the Week. Laura, what do you have for us this week? Well, there's been so much to choose from this summer that I've read or listened to or beauty products, all the things to choose for my Awesome of the Week. But I'm saving what kind of is like my Awesome of the Summer. I don't want to build up too much, but I'm saving it for a group show that we're doing in a few weeks. Oh, okay. So today I settled on pretty much my drink of the summer or everyone's 
around me's drink of the summer, a rosé. Ooh, nice. Tell me more. Do you drink wine? Are you a wine drinker? I don't even know. We do. We're more of just straight red. That's what Kyle and I both prefer. So we haven't even really dabbled in rosé. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I like red. I am not a wine connoisseur at all. In fact, I've lived in California all these years, 16 years, and I've only made my first trip to Napa this past spring. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Although I do enjoy wine, like with dinner and whatnot. I'll drink red, white, anything. I kind of prefer the lightness of a white most of the time, although I'll drink red with steak or that kind of things. But my point is, I'm not that picky. I like what I like, but I'm not, you know, super clearly super snobby about it or anything like that. My LA girlfriends all drink rosé, which I guess that's super trendy right now. Because I keep seeing all the articles, the rosé all day, sort of like funny memes and whatever. Mm-hmm. Which, fine, I didn't even know that there was specific wine humor, but okay. So <laughs> I got into rosé because that's what they would always drink when we would get together. And then I found I really did like it for lots of reasons. It is lighter, so you can, you know, five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> if you want, you don't feel like, wow, I've really just started drinking today. <laughs> and... Also, it doesn't give me a headache or, oh, right. you know, mess with my tummy or anything like that that sometimes alcohol can do. And I'm not a humongous alcohol drinker throughout the whole year, especially in the winter. But in the summer, we have lots of house guests and we have barbecues and we have lots of things. So anyway, what I was pouring most of the time this summer was a rosé. And I'm always looking for people's suggestions on what's good or not, because otherwise, I just stand in the grocery store and just like pick by the label. <laughs> Which is not a bad strategy, honestly, overall. (laughs) No, it's a terrible strategy. It almost never works out. And then someone will tell me about a wine that they like or whatever, and I will forget to write it down, and then I'll forget it, and then it's just all goes to wherever. So I'm giving two tried and true rosé recommendations. I get these both at Costco. Okay. So that's a bonus because they're both under $20 each. One is called Miraval. It's in a very pretty bottle. And I did not know this. I'd been drinking this for a while before somebody told me that it was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's Mm. rosé that they do together from their vineyard or whatever. But it's very nice. And then the other one is, I'm going to butcher this because I don't know how to say foreign names, but it's in a very beautiful bottle. And it's called White Knuckle as I try to say something foreign. It's called... (laughs) Cote de Rose. I don't know. C-O-T-E-S. New word. D-E-S. New word. Roses. (laughs) (laughs) The phonetics of it. That is amazing. Didn't you take French at some point in your life? I took French in college and I also was in France in June. It doesn't matter. Like I am a hillbilly through and through. That's right. And I cannot say foreign things very well at all. Good. But I appreciate them so much. Anyway, this bottle is very pretty. It has like a rose. The bottles are so pretty, in fact, that I keep them and scrub the label off to put water in them. They are really, really nice bottles and under 20 bucks each at Costco if you have a Costco. And it's wonderful for friends come over or... Perfect. Yeah, I love it. I know. It's true. Rosé is so trendy and so in right now. I still haven't even picked up a bottle because I didn't even know where to start. But now I have some good leads. So thank you for that. 
What is your awesome of the week? You must have so many as well. I've been saving them up. I have so many to share. My awesome of the week is three podcast episodes. I don't want to overwhelm anybody. So these are episodes that you can go and check out on their own. They're all from new podcasts that have just released in really in the past few months. The first one is from a new podcast from Jesse Thorne. It's called The Turnaround. Oh, that is one of the best things I've listened to this summer, for sure. It's so great. So if you don't know Jesse Thorne, he hosts actually a couple of podcasts. He hosts Bullseye with Jesse Thorne for NPR. It's kind of a pop culture adjacent interview show. And then he has another one called Jordan Jesse Go on Maximum Fun, more of a comedy based show. Anyway, on The Turnaround, it's Jesse Thorne interviewing people who do interviews for their job about the art of the interview. And it is so fascinating. So he's had people like Ira Glass and Larry King and Anna Sale and Katie Kirk, just all kinds of people who do interviews. And he just sits down and talks with them about like, how do you get such good stuff out of people? So it's really good. But the episode I want to tell you guys about is his interview with Jerry Springer. Oh, it's so good. I'm so glad you're talking about this. Yes, it's exceptional. So even if you are not at all interested in learning about like the nuts and bolts of the art of the interview, you have to check out this interview with Jerry Springer because honestly, (laughs) they don't even really spend that much time talking about Jerry Springer's approach to interviews with his show. It is just this fascinating hour. You are going to hear Jerry Springer like you've never heard him before. I was blown away by what a fascinating person he is. He's so smart. So smart. He's warm. He's really candid about his show and what people think about his show. He's like super self-aware, don't you think? Way more than I thought he would be. Like, I never would have guessed some of the things that he said about the Jerry Springer show, ever. Yes. So he tells so much about like how the Jerry Springer show came to be a thing, sort of like the evolution of it, sort of the logistics of how it works. And it's all just incredibly fascinating. But he himself as a person, I was just, I can't even say it enough. I was really blown away by what a dynamic person he is, how smart he is. And I don't know, it's really good. So Again, the Jerry Springer episode of The Turnaround. And I'm going to put, of course, links to all of this in the show notes because I want you guys to go check these out and you don't have to remember all of them. But that one's really exceptional. I want to say one quick thing about The Turnaround in general. Okay, yes. Because I started listening to it. I think you texted me and told me to go listen to it because it's about the art of the interview and on our other show, Smartest Person in the Room, I'm sort of a de facto interviewer, which was not what I set out in my life to be. And so that's why I thought I would be interested in the turnaround. But what I've actually gotten out of it, what I think anybody would get out of it, even if they don't do that kind of work, is there's so much good stuff about just conversation. Yes, totally. It really is. So not only are you hearing from really famous interviewers, so maybe you're curious about their behind the scenes method, but even if you're not, or even if you're not familiar with who he's talking with, just their approach to either their job or how they get stories out of people, it like, it applies to everyone just in your like regular talking life. That is so true. If you are somebody that feels a little itchy about like small talk or having to have a conversation or even, you know, like job interview type situations or conversations you need to have at work. Yeah, Laura, you're so right. There's so many great pointers about just like how to talk to people. It's really good. It's a great one. And there's lots of good stuff in that feed already, even though it's a fairly new one. Okay, the next one is another new release. It is called The Nod. It's from Gimlet Media. 
And it's hosted by Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. And the sort of premise of the show is it's a look at the beautiful, complicated dimensions of Black life. And so they've got a few episodes out. It's really fascinating. I just love Brittany Luce. You know, she used to have another podcast with Gimlet called Sampler, where she would, you know, kind of preview different segments from different podcasts. And I loved that. I was sad when it went away. But here she is back with Gimlet with the nod. Anyway, the episode I want to direct you to is called Good for the Blacks. It is a panel discussion with Brittany and Eric, and then also they're joined by Vincent Cunningham and Amina Tosso. And they talk about this season's Bachelorette with Rachel Lindsay as the Bachelorette, the first Black Bachelorette. And it's so good. It's super powerful insights on race and class and television and culture. Even if you have not watched this season's Bachelorette, even if you're not into Bachelor and Bachelorette shows, it's a really great discussion on particularly race and television and representation. So highly, highly recommend that one. That one sounds really good, too. It is. So good. So good. I just recommend The Nod in general. But if you're only going to listen to one, check out Good for the Blacks. It's a great episode. Okay. And then the third one I wanted to recommend is from a new podcast called Annotated. And it's a really fun one. It's kind of books and reading adjacent. It's not necessarily about books themselves. It's more like about authors or contexts when different books were written. And the third episode from Annotated is called The World's Most Glamorous Librarian. It's about the life of Belle DaCosta Green, who was a librarian for J.P. Morgan as he was assembling his massive and very famous, very well-known sort of library of rare and priceless works. Wow. And what is super fascinating about her is she actually was an African-American woman as well, very light-skinned, was able to pass as white, actually portrayed herself as being Portuguese. And so it just tells the story of this woman who was a very glamorous librarian in sort of Gatsby-era New York City and the life that she was able to live. And it's really good. Again, even if you're the kind of person who wouldn't find the life of a librarian, all that interesting, I would just highly recommend it because it's a fascinating story about, again, about race and class, but also about women and kind of how they were making their way in the world during that era in American history. So three great podcast episodes to tickle your earbuds these days. I love that. I'm always looking for something good to listen to. So that was great. Okay, well, before we dig into all of our books and reading talk for this week, I wanted to tell you all that I'm so thrilled to have Lola sponsor this episode of Sorta Awesome. I've talked about Lola on the show before, but just as a reminder, Lola is the woman-owned company that ships monthly period products right to your door. And the reason I love Lola so much and the reason I've been a customer of theirs for years is I find it really troubling that the FDA does not require brands to provide a complete list of ingredients in their feminine care products. Now, thankfully, you don't have to give that a second thought with Lola. They are committed to complete transparency with their entire product line. And all of Lola's products are made from 100% cotton. What I truly love about them is that because they are a company founded by women for women, they know that each of us know our own bodies and our own cycles better than anyone else. So they let you completely customize your box of products every single month. So if you're ordering a box of 18 tampons, you get to pick how many you want to be light, how many regular, and so on. 
you can totally customize the whole thing. Your mix of products, your choice of absorbency, how often you want them delivered. You can change up your shipment at any time or even skip a month if you need to. Now, because the team at Lola wants you to know how awesome it is to have 100% cotton feminine care products shipped right to your door each month, they're offering 60% off of your first order when you go to mylola.com and enter promo code AWESOME60 when you subscribe. So to check out Lola and get 60% off of your first order, go to mylola.com and enter promo code AWESOME60 when you subscribe. All of these details will be in today's show notes for you. And thank you so much to Lola. Okay, Laura, I know that you and I both have spent many hours this summer reading, just totally have had a book with us at all times. And you always have fantastic recommendations about what is good to read. So tell us what you've been reading, especially let's start with fiction. What have you been reading good in fiction this summer? Well, I've actually read less this summer, not time-wise, but <laughs> number of books-wise, because I spent most of June rereading Stephen King's book, It. Oh, right. Yes. Which is 1,500 pages. <laughs> so in some ways, it counts as like reading three uh -huh. or more books, you know? Definitely. And I have long counted Stephen King's book, It, as one of my favorites of all time. So I was a little bit nervous to wade back into it. I haven't read it in decades. But I wanted to reread it in June. One, because the movie adaptation is coming out. It's getting a ton of buzz. It looks very scary. I will not see it. <laughs> a lot of people will be talking about it. And so I wanted to have reread the book. And so... I decided to. I'm not a humongous rereader, but for some reason, maybe because I'm approaching a milestone birthday in a couple of years, I've gotten into mm -hmm. this mood to reread some of my favorites and maybe just sort mm -hmm. of reevaluate my favorites of all time list. Yes. Yeah, I get it. I do. And so anyway, I spent a lot of June reading that book on my Kindle. It's just way too thick to read in hardback or paperback <laughs> even. So I loved it. It's definitely scary and not for everyone, but it really holds up. It's an was, old book yeah. and it's about childhood friendships that then, you know, also kind of become adult friendships. And the friendship theme, as you will see from my book list almost at all times, always really touches me as a thing that I am always exploring in my personal life and and in my literary life, apparently. So I really loved it. It's truly about like the human condition and relationships. And I think that people who haven't read it sort of get mired down in what they think it's about, which is a scary clown that lives in the sewer and tries to kill kids. Right? Yes. Or some people have read what that's a metaphor for and what they think the book is trying to say. And if you haven't read it, then probably you have a misconception about what this book is about. So it's a huge task. I don't expect that a lot of listeners will necessarily even take it on. But because there are going to be a lot of think pieces and a lot of buzz about the movie surrounding it, it's really good. And I think it's worth revisiting some of your old favorites to see how they strike you. I read it with a totally different perspective as an adult and as a mom. Uh-huh. Yeah. Then when I read it as a teenager... I feel differently about friendships now. I feel differently about children. I feel differently about what life is about. So that was a big read for June. I love it. What has been one of your biggest reads of the summer? 
Okay, well, I didn't take on anything as prolific (laughs) as Stephen King's It. The first one I wanted to tell you, and really what has guided my reading this year is I'm doing Book Riot's Read Harder 2017 Challenge. So one of my personal goals for 2017 reading-wise was to stretch myself, especially in the area of fiction, because I am always nonfiction heavy in my reading. So I'm like, okay, we're going to push ourselves and really find some good fiction. And so I've really let that lead the way in picking these different titles for my fiction reading this year. So the very first item on Book Riot's Read Harder for 2017 is read a book about sports. Ugh. And- Right? I was like, oh, I don't know. What am I going to read? So we have on Facebook a spinoff group of the Sort of Awesome Hangout that's called Sort of Book Nerds. And I asked in there, y'all, I have to read a book about sports. What do I read? And I got a ton of great suggestions. But one of the suggestions from one of the awesomes, who also happens to be one of my college sorority sisters, and she's now a school librarian. Her name's Jessalyn. Hi, Jessalyn. She highly and strongly recommended that I check out Kwame Alexander's The Crossover. So it's a middle grades book. And she was like, check it out. You have to listen to it. It's only about two hours on audiobook. It's about basketball, but it's about a lot of other things. So I just finished it actually. And it is so good, Laura. I'm so glad I actually, I did take her advice and listen to it on Audible because Kwame Alexander, it's read by Corey Allen. What he does is he really weaves in poetry and just regular prose in this book. And it's the story of twins, Josh and Jordan, who are seventh or eighth grade, I think. And basketball is their life. It's at the very center of their life. Basketball makes up the framework for the story. Now, listen, I'm not super into basketball. I even, you know, when pressed, if I like sports in general, basketball is not at the top of my list. But this book is so good. It really explores a lot of things, especially family issues. It's a very interesting dynamic looking at twin boys and their relationship. One of the twins gets a girlfriend in the book for the first time and looking at how the other twin deals with the sort of fallout of that. The loneliness that he feels is super interesting. It's a very fascinating exploration of fathers and sons. Also, just the pure joy of loving something as much as these twins, Josh and Jordan, love basketball and why they love basketball so much. It deals with heartbreak. It deals with loss. Kwame Alexander is amazing with words. The way he uses words in this book is so fascinating. I have to tell you. So first of all, Josh, our narrator, is really big into learning vocabulary words. So he like weaves in vocabulary and definitions in really fun ways throughout the book. And then the author, Kwame Alexander, does this really stunning thing in the middle of chapter three of this book, where he really plays around with the idea of second person. And oh, I got chills just now thinking about it. I got chills when I was listening to it. It's really powerfully and wonderfully written, but totally accessible for your middle grade reader and really moving for adults too. I cried at the end. It was very good. It has, you know, some YA stuff. You kind of have a question mark. Is this really appropriate for my kids or not? This is very clean, just a great story. So again, it's The Crossover by Kwame Alexander. I highly recommend you listen to it, read by Corey Allen. How can you tell that it's powerfully and wonderfully written when you're listening to it? You will pick up on the way. I do think adult readers would really pick up on this. The way he uses language and the way he blends poetry with prose and he ties in like, so there's like a lot of hip hop reference and 
and influence over it. It really is poetic in the way it's written, but it's not like listening to somebody recite poetry. Does that make sense? I just have such a hard time with audiobook fiction. I feel like I wouldn't even be a good judge of the writing or I just feel like there's too many variables with audiobooks, like the narrator and where I am when I'm listening to it. And I don't know. I just, it's really hard for me to do anything except the actual story. That's the only thing. I mean, I get it. And I totally hear what you're saying. I will say that the way that Alexander uses language is so like, you cannot help but to take note of it as you're listening to it. I don't know how to better describe it than that. I don't think it's just because I'm such a nerdy person about words. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But it's very like you cannot help but to be like, wow, this dude knows how to play with the English language. It's really fun. And really, I mean, it's really good too. It's not just fun. It's a fantastic story, but the way he uses language is awesome. So super recommend. Okay. What's next on your fun fiction reads for the summer? Probably my favorite thing I read this summer, at least so far, because I'm still in summer mode, is Anything is Possible by Elizabeth Strout. Hmm, okay. So I read My Name is Lucy Barton, also by Elizabeth Strout, in January on vacation. That book's been out for several years, and I was absolutely blown away by it. I talked a lot about this on the episode of Smartest Person in the Room when we talked about books in June. So I won't rehash all that, but I loved it so much. And Anything is Possible is sort of a follow-up. You could read them independently. They're not, it's not like a true sequel where it's dependent upon the first one, but it is set in Lucy Barton's hometown, which in My Name is Lucy Barton, she's always kind of flashing back to. So the settings are similar and some of the themes are similar and Lucy Barton herself pops up in Anything is Possible. But I can just rave about Anything is Possible as a standalone because that's what it is. It is short, so it's like a good weekend read. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Strout's writing, one of the reasons it appeals to me so much, is it's very sparse. She does not use flowery language which I don't care for. She does not go into long descriptions of what the forest looked like, which I also don't care for. (laughs) But she also makes you, as she's, you know, doing a dialogue between two characters or even sort of explaining this character's thought process or whatever, you are absolutely like, I know that person. Like, I Mm. absolutely exactly know that person. She describes the people we know. (laughs) And I... I felt like maybe because I am from a tiny town and this is about a tiny town, I was like, oh, this is about my town, which I think is just the most universal story, right? And it's also not a long narrative. There's not a Mm. big story arc or anything like that. It's almost just like these little vignettes of people Mm -hmm. or relationships or sort of scenarios. And they are all lightly connected. Like this doesn't give anything away. Like maybe, you know... At sort of the end of one vignette, the people go into a diner and they sit down and then the next vignette will pick up from the point of view of the waitress from their Mm -hmm, diner and then it will pick up and kind of give her sort of story. So they're sort of loosely connected, but they're not, you know, intrinsic to one another. Anyway, it is so good and beautiful to the point that when I was done reading it, I have not had this thought in my head. I mean, in a long, long, long time, I really was like to myself... I wish I had written this. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's huge. 
It was huge. I just felt like I had visited this town. Mm. And not in a way, it doesn't make you want to like live in the town forever. <laughs> no. no, just the experience of the whole book. Yes. Sounds like it was like really almost tangible in how much you could grasp onto I where just, she was taking you. I absolutely loved it. I can't believe I have held out on reading Elizabeth Strout for years. I now want to read everything that she's ever written. But it's going to be... Both My Name is Lucy Barton and Anything is Possible will be on my year-end best of list. I can already tell you that right now. It's so good. I love that. I love a book like that where you just feel like you're just completely immersed in the whole, the setting, the people, all of the things, and that you can connect with it because you have experienced that. I love that about books when you really can, you know, something's really universal, but also super personal too. I love it. Okay, well, the next one on my fiction list is Becky Albertalli's Upside of Unrequited. So at the end of May, when author Aisha Saeed came on Sort of Awesome, this was one of the books that she talked about that she had recently read that she thought would be a great summer read. And I was super excited to pick this one up because I'd already read Becky Albertalli's first book, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, which is so cute and darling and one of my favorite YA reads. So I was really excited for this new release from Becky. I'm just going to use her first name like we're buds. (laughs) So this is her second book, Upside of Unrequited, and it follows the story of our protagonist, Molly. Molly is getting ready to be a senior in high school, and she has a twin sister named Cassie. I don't know how I keep picking up books about twins, Laura. This is not intentional. (laughs) I was going to say, wow, you're really striking a real theme. (laughs) Completely unintentional. I did not know twins were involved in either of these before I started reading. So anyway, Molly has a twin sister named Cassie. Now, Molly self-describes herself as fat. Cassie is very slender and pretty and has lots of boyfriends and lots of relationships. Molly, our protagonist, really only allows herself to have crushes on boys, but she never acts on them. And so sort of the inciting action at the beginning of this book is that Cassie's been giving her such a hard time about this, about only having crushes and, you know, kind of challenges her if she's ever going to act on it. So in the same way that happens in the crossover, Cassie, the twin, uh, begins a new relationship and Molly has to work through her feelings about that. I don't know if the universe is like trying to prepare me for something my twins are for. So that's way on the horizon for us. So anyway. you think, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Molly's working through her feelings about that. Now, interestingly, against the backdrop of all of this that's happening is the fact that the girls, the twins' moms, are getting officially married after the Supreme Court's real-life 2015 marriage equality ruling. So that's kind of the thing that's happening, like the building action throughout the whole story, is Molly, who's really Pinteresty and loves to decorate and plan events, is planning her mom's wedding. And so that's going on in the background. In the midst of all of that, Molly gets a crush on this boy-next-door type. And kind of the thing is, like, is she going to actually act on it? and take a risk and what's going to happen. So it's a really cute, fun, short read. One thing that Becky Albertalli really does well in her books is she really blends in lots and lots and lots of like pop culture and internet culture references. So they feel like really super relevant. You can kind of read how teens and young people really talk today. And anyway, I just really loved it. It's a really fun, light read that you could totally read in a day or two and just leaves you feeling lots of warm and fuzzy things. And so again, it's Becky Albertalli's Upside of Unrequited. All right, what's next on your list? The next one on my list I literally finished this morning. 
I know you texted me yesterday that you were hurriedly trying to finish a book. I was cramming in one to see if I was going to make a mention on this episode, and it definitely is. It's called This Is How It Always Is by Laurie Frankel. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this one floating about? Oh, yes. It is definitely on my to-be-read list. I have not picked it up yet, but tons of people are talking about this book. Tons of people were talking about it. I picked it up at a little bookstore when I did my little getaway. You know, I like to go away for a night or two completely by myself and stay in a cold hotel room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, perfect summer retreat. I try to do that like twice a year. Anyway, I did that in Asheville, North Carolina, and went to some of their independent bookstores there, which are really cute. Anyway, I bought This Is How It Always Is because I'd seen all the buzz, but I had actually read nothing about it. Like, I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know anything about it had not even read that it is controversial until I started it I'm gonna tell you nothing about it because I really think people should just read it without knowing about it Mm -hmm. I don't know that it would or would not have affected my thoughts going into it but maybe and I think that something like this is better open-minded right yes I just started it again not knowing where we were going And it's the story of a family, basically. It's a story of a husband and a wife and their five kids. And I absolutely loved the way that Frankel portrayed families and just sort of their interaction, like big families and how, you know, there's a lot of like verbal banter at the dinner table and, you know, chaos when they're little. You kind of follow this family through a good 10 years or so. Anyway, so you're kind of following from like the parents being like crazy. We have all these little kids to like sort of as they grow up and until they're in high school and middle school and all of this kind of thing. Anyway, I loved the way that she showed what family life is really like. Like it felt true to me. She didn't overemphasize like how crazy it is to have little kids. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And she didn't overemphasize how angsty teenagers are. Like it just didn't fall into those cliches. It felt really complicated and loving and warm, but with hard moments. Like I just really liked it. I also liked she did the same for just the marriage, you know, take away the children, just The marriage between Rosie and Penn, who are the parents, I really liked it. At one point, this is literally no plot point, they sort of like have an argument and then make up. And I even liked those little scenes of like, this is what relationship is. And there's not always a tidy conclusion with a bow, but nor is there like, you know, lose sleep over it forever either. Like it's messy and it kind of sometimes just stays messy. And I just really liked that. I really liked her dialogue, you know, mostly. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot about it to like, and it's almost hard to speak about it without like giving anything away. So I just would say this is a book that it was time for, I think. It's a bestseller for a reason. You know, no matter how you feel about the different issues that it brings up, I think that it is mind broadening. Is that a Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a good way, because it's in a story versus like, you know, political agenda or religious agenda or whatever. It's like, this is the story of this family. And it definitely shined a light on some things I hadn't thought about, which is really the best thing that you can say about a book, right? A hundred percent. Yes. I love when books do that. Okay, well, the next one on my list was another one I picked up for the reading challenge, and the item was to read a classic by an author of color. So I picked, I can't believe I had never read this before, 
I picked Zora Neale Hurston's oh, Their Eyes so Were Watching good. God. It's so good. I know you read this a couple of years ago. I read this and for ha- my personal Read Great Books Lit Challenge. Yes. And I cannot believe how good this book is. It's so good. I'm getting chills again just thinking about it. So if you're like me and you had never picked up Their Eyes Were Watching God, it's a novel released by Zora Neale Hurston in 1937. And it tells the story of Janie Crawford and kind of the context for the story is she has returned home to a small town in Florida after being gone for a number of years and is kind of relaying the story of her life, of loves in her life and marriages. And we kind of see how those are not always the same thing since she has gone away. And it kind of just kind of traces her life through that. And it's one of those books that, golly, you read it and you're like, I can't believe that this was published in the era that it was published in because it is so powerful. Like you were saying just now, like world expanding in terms of how you think about things and to think that here was Laura Neale Hurston writing this in 1937 as an African-American woman. I mean, to have both of those things as identifiers for her in the fact that this was published, the way she explores race, the main character is a light-skinned Black woman. And so we get these insights into how Janie has come to recognize herself, sort of the angst and struggle of that. Things about social hierarchy, both within the broader culture and also within Black culture, what it means to actually love somebody and to come to know and love your own self. Oh, if you are a woman and you have not read Their Eyes Were Watching God, you have to pick it up. I can't believe I've never read it before, but I'm telling you. And it's not a terribly long read. You can read it quite easily. So it's so great. I can't say enough good things about it. It's definitely one that should be on like a person's life. Yes. Classics, you know, like a book that people should read. It is definitely on that list. It's so good. Yes, yes, yes. So good. Okay, and so there's one last book that I wanted us to talk about. It's a book that we both read over the summer, and you and I haven't even really talked about our reactions to it. And that is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. We did preview this book back when it was a Book of the Month Club selection. That's when I picked it up. And so I read it. I absolutely loved it. I know you've read it, Laura, so I want to hear your thoughts here in just a minute. But just to kind of give you the setup for the book, it follows the life of a glamorous movie star actress who is now at the end of her life. But she was kind of like, I don't know, like an Elizabeth Taylor, Marilyn Monroe, like bombshell type actress. And the context for the story and the way that Taylor Jenkins Reid sets it up, I think is so interesting because each of the sections of the book are about one of our protagonists, Evelyn Hugo, about one of her marriages. So she's had seven husbands over the course of her life. So each section is titled with her husband's name, but then it's like really what happened in her life, Evelyn Hugo's life during the time of that marriage. And against the backdrop of all of that is the story of the true love of her life, who is not one of her husbands. And mixed in with all of that, we have our sort of narrator for the story and how her life intersected with Evelyn Hugo's life. So this was a great contemporary fiction read. That was another challenge to myself for this year was to actually pick up really good contemporary fiction that has come out this year. And I'm so glad I got this one. I really loved it. I love the character of Evelyn Hugo. And I thought Taylor Jenkins Reid's writing was really fantastic, really enjoyable. 
Yeah, this is my favorite beach read for the summer. It's like very fluffy, but very enjoyable, like not super dumb fluffy. Right. Really enjoyable characters and storyline, like a page turner in like a gossipy sort of way. You know, I like the parts that were set in Los Angeles, which is about half the book, just because, you know, she mentions a lot of sort of old famous restaurants that are still there. She kind of does a lot of Los Angeles history. So that's especially fun for me. Yeah. I just thought it was big fun. This was the month I said on our book of the month preview show that I was going to skip. And then I went. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then I went back and nabbed it. And I am so glad I did. Another part about it being about Hollywood is I totally think, although this is completely unsubstantiated, this is not Hollywood Insider I'm about to give you. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought that some of the things that took place to further her career in Hollywood and, you know, about the marriages and why she was married so many times and some different things, I absolutely believe happened not just for the time period where it was like set in the 50s, but even now, I believe that (laughs) relationships are contrived. I guess I'll just say it like that. Okay, I'm so glad you're addressing this because I specifically wanted to ask you how realistic were some of these marriage arrangements? Oh, absolutely realistic in that time, for sure. I mean, I think that there are pretty proven examples of it. Mm -hmm. But I even think to this day that maybe not so overtly business transactions, I guess, but maybe the players themselves are making strategic choices in their Mm -hmm. partners for PR reasons, for career reasons. It helps them both along. You know, I don't know that it's always deceitful or even ever deceitful as it is like this will help us both out to be a public power couple or whatever. Hopefully we as a world, maybe those reasons have changed. Like they're less that someone has something deep to hide all the time. So much as I do think that a lot of it is career driven. Like Mm. you are going to marry someone that's going to help you or you're going to help someone else out for your own reasons. Yeah, I definitely thought that that happened. And so I liked that. I enjoyed that part of it, I guess I should say. Okay, so we're both giving that one a thumbs up. It's a good, fun read. Like you said, Laura, it's fluffy, but not like dumb. It's really, there's good stuff in there. I really like the character of Evelyn Hugo too, so... Okay, that brings us to the end of our talk about fiction. Now, I had a lot of nonfiction to choose from, but I made myself, you know, sort of like narrow down the list. So I know you have a couple of nonfiction choices to what have you been reading nonfiction wise that has made an impact on you or was good? The one I think that I'm really going to take into the rest of my year is called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I got this recommendation from Ann Bogle, Modern Mrs. Darcy's blog. She did a post. I'll have to find it so we can put it in the show notes. But it was something about books that had shaped her habits or changed her work life or something like that. I can't remember. And this was on there and it appealed to me. So I think I ended up picking it up as a Kindle deal. And it's basically about deep work versus shallow work, meaning like harder, meatier work that you really need to be alone to do. And some of the stuff he addresses in the book was like how we all got to be doing such shallow work, which is to say you can spend several hours doing email and that feels productive to you. And it is ticking a to-do off your list possibly, but that's not really deep work. Right. That's not fulfilling to you. That's not fulfilling to the world. So for me, it, 
it made me realize a couple of things that I really knew, but it just made me kind of face them, which is when I closed my blog a couple of years ago, I have not done a lot of deep work since. Now, my blog was not full of deep work, if you're you're thinking that. But for me as a human, that was my version of deep work during that time. Like writing a thoughtful essay when I had little children was as deep as I could get at the time. And so that was deep work for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And when I closed it, you know, I, of course, proud of the work I've done on this podcast and proud of the work that I've done on Smartest Person in the Room. But it's almost like you are your own barometer for what is your true deep work. And I know that I have not been doing, sorry to keep using the phrase, I have not been doing the type of deep work that I am capable of and that I want to be doing, like me as Laura. Mm, Yes. He does talk in the first part of the book about how we got here. And it's not like an indictment against social media or email or anything, although there was some things in there that were quite convicting about what I have convinced myself was deep work and is not really, or the fact that sometimes my social media habits and addictions do get out of control. And I try to rein myself back in. I'm not unaware of it, Mm -hmm. but just some of the things that he said, not in a scolding manner, but like just in a sort of factual or statistical manner really like made me sit up and take notice. And then the back half of deep work is him sort of explaining the different ways that one can do it, meaning some, you know, he uses examples for all types of people, but like you can either go away for two weeks and hole up in a cabin and, you know, write several chapters of your novel, or you can build in deep work days into your day where you turn everything off and... Mm -hmm. You can, like he does, he's a professor, so he puts like an email, he takes an email sabbatical where, you know, he puts the auto reply on that's like, I'm not replying to emails all month or whatever. Right. He gives all these different examples. I did think when he really, when he really goes into it, that for someone like me, who's a work at home mom, some of those things are not realistic, which is obvious. Mm -hmm. He's not prescribing anything for you. Sure, sure. Right. But... You know, some of them, you know, I was like, oh, I wish I could do that, but there's just no way. And then otherwise, I'm like, well, that would take a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from the early part of the book where I was sort of feeling the conviction, by the time you get to the this is how you do it section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, I think I'm ready to take this on, possibly. Yeah. It's not a perfect nonfiction book, but it gave me a lot to think about. It gave me a lot of true examples and real ways that people are doing this. I will say it felt a little male heavy. Okay. Most of his examples felt like not moms. Mm, Sure. Which look, that's not an indictment. I don't know what Cal Newport's general audience base is. Do you know what I mean? Like, fine. Yeah. But there's lots of ways in which I was just like, that is not feasible for me or even my peers. However, Main point is it gave me a lot to think about my own work habits, what I have let slip away for myself, what I want to change up for the fall for both of our podcasts and for some other writing work I want to be doing and and that sort of thing. So I recommend it no matter what your personal deep work is. That is so great. Okay, well, I happen to pick up this summer. I'm actually almost done with it. Haven't quite finished it, but it's a book I know that you have read and loved, and that is Greg McCowan's Essentialism. Oh, it's in my top five nonfiction, I think. Oh, that's such a good book. I am so glad. I actually picked it up. My therapist recommended that I check it out because I have been kind of exploring some things about how I just cannot grasp how to make my life work with the priorities that I want to emphasize. 
It's kind of like you were talking about, the difference between deep work and shallow work. I feel like I'm constantly busy, but so rarely feel like, oh, I feel so satisfied. I'm so proud of myself that I got this done or that I emphasized this today. So I picked it up on her recommendation and it is so good. I can see why a lot of people look to this as a life changer kind of book. I love that he kind of helps. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he writes about, and he even says this, this is like not brand new information, but he sort of distills it down into things that are really applicable and really strong takeaways. So Early in the book, he kind of proposes three questions that we should all be considering as we consider how do we, you know, sort of like build our lives around the things that are the most essential to us. And so it's things like, what am I deeply passionate about? What really taps my talent? And what is going to meet a significant need in the world? Now, all of us, a lot of people who are listening are women. Many of us are moms. We all have things that we have to do like the laundry and (laughs) carpool and those types of things. So I think that as we're considering these big questions, it could be easy to write it off and be like, well, I've got to do the laundry and make it to carpool. And so we do have things that we have to get done that are essential to our lives working. But I love the big picture of essentialism, of being so thoughtful about what is truly essential in your life. And then he gives really good applicable takeaways. Like he gives you eight strategies for gently and gracefully saying no to something. And that's what I want out of a productivity book or out of a book that's going to kind of like rearrange the way I order my days. I need to know specifically, like that stuff doesn't come naturally to me. So I need you to tell me specifically, what are some approaches I can take? Those two books are not dissimilar. I mean, essentialism is more bigger picture and is more about all kinds of things in your life, like, you know, everything in your life that you have to do and whatever. And deep work is sort of more about just finding your spot, your one work thing, but they're making the same points. And I think that they're good points. Yeah, it's a good one. Another nonfiction book that I read this summer, which both of the ones we just talked about were sort of business related, but I love a good memoir. Of course, listeners probably know that I love true crime. So this book really ticked all my boxes because it was both of those things. It's called The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich. Mm-hmm. And it is really unlike anything I have read in a while. It's part memoir and part true crime. So she's a lawyer who goes back to Louisiana to dig deeper into a case that possibly was going to go to appeal for a big firm she worked for. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so she starts to look into this murder case and she interweaves it with her own personal kind of childhood memoir, which is completely unrelated to the murder. Oh, wow. So on paper, this seems like, how does that work? (laughs) Right. That's interesting. But it does work because you start to see that there's some, you know, very indirectly similar themes there. And just her writing is really strong and really compelling. I will say, I said this when I posted about it on Instagram, that if you are the type of person who reads like five books at once, I'm not that type of person, but I know a lot of people are, this one would be hard to do so. Because she jumps back and forth between the murder and her memoir, and there's time jumps and obviously, you know, pretty major scenario jumps, it would be hard to read this like while you're reading a million other things. You kind of have to focus on it. But I just thought it was really interesting structure, first of all, and kind of an exploration of 
Like it wasn't fully true crime and it wasn't fully memoir, but it still really worked. My big warning on it is that the crime that is committed and the part of her life that she focuses on in the memoir section are both hard things happening to children. Ah, okay. So if that is something that, you know, someone really needs to stay away from or can't handle, then this is not that at all because there's a lot of that and it's hard to read. It is very hard to read. However, even within that, I thought that, especially as you come to the conclusion, especially towards the end, she gets really nuanced in these things that we think are absolutely tragic just on the surface, like black and white. There is nothing here to say except that this is awful. She really does some introspective things towards the end that just will make you weep Mm. with just sort of the tragedy of it all. But then there's also, gosh, maybe there's some love in these Mm. terrible things. And that's kind of waters that people are not usually willing to tread Mm, very well. But as you followed this whole story with someone and you're deep in it, you know, it's not like she says these things at the outset. As you follow the whole story with someone, you're just like, this is hard stuff. And it's not always black and white or cut and dry or whatever. So I just thought it was really well done. It's not that long, but it's also higher brow writing than some true crime Mm. is. Mm-hmm. That's kind mm-hmm. of one of the knocks sure. on true crime. Not lately. In the last, I don't know, decade or more, true crime, as it's gotten sort of more popular, some of the quality has gotten a lot better. There's some really great true crime stuff out there. But this is excellent in terms of intellectual approaches. Sounds amazing. It's called The Fact of a Body by Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich. Okay. Well, my last selection I wanted to talk about is going to take a sharp turn from that. (laughs) It's not difficult to read at all, although it is a memoir. It's a travel memoir, and I'm cheating a little bit because I actually read this late last spring, and it's Tish Oxenrider's At Home in the World. Tish was on the show in the spring talking about this book, and I cannot stop talking about it. It's definitely going to be one of my top reads for 2017. And I would say that even if Tish wasn't a dear friend of mine, I just think it is so fantastically done. I have never really actually read much travel memoir before. The little that I have read just felt really inaccessible to me in where I am in life with having four kids and it's hard to do any kind of traveling. And I feel like a lot of travel memoir is younger people, maybe they're single or they're married, they don't have kids, or they're older and they're retired, or they have jobs where they can just pack up and leave and go. It feels a little, you know, like sort of out of bounds for what I could even imagine doing. In At Home in the World, Tish and her husband Kyle pack up their three children and journey around the globe with their kids with them. And so it felt super relatable in that sense because you get a really beautiful blend of family life and traveling life together. And what I really love that Tish does that's so clever and makes the memoir, I think, even more compelling is that the undertone as they're going and they're traveling and they're, you know, they're like going from China and then Morocco and Australia and Europe and all these places around the world. And she's talking about their experiences there. But there's this underlying thing the whole time of they are trying to decide when they finish up their year of travel, where are they going to live? Are they going to go back to the town in Oregon that they had launched from? If they could, because they both have jobs where they could kind of live anywhere, where is their family going to settle? And so she really grapples with the idea of what is home and where do we fit and how do we live family life that is really according to what our family treasures. How do we do all of that? And she's grappling with it as they're traveling around the globe. And just the juxtaposition of home 
in a travel book is so well done and it's beautifully written and you get these great glimpses of what life looks like all around the globe. Ugh, I can't stop talking about it. It's so fantastic. It is a must read for 2017. Oh my gosh, that has been on my list. I got it right when it came out in the spring and have just had it on my bedside forever. I'm moving it towards the top. I really respect Tish. I followed their family's like travels in real time on social media. And so yeah. I have been wanting to yes. like see the behind the scenes thought process there. So yes, I'm moving that up to my fall list. I'm glad you recommended it so highly. So good. It's so good. Okay, this was so much book talk, Laura. As usual, we have lots of words about books and reading going on. So this was sort of a summer wrap up of what we've been into. So you know, we are always up for talking about books with you guys. So if you would like to come and find us all around the web, Laura, remind everybody where we can find you. You can always find me at lauratremaine.com. I write a monthly email called The Secret Posts, where I always put a little synopsis of what I've been reading, what I want to read next. And those are called The Secret Posts. You can sign up for them at lauratremaine.com. I'm also on Twitter at laura.tremaine and Instagram at lauratremaine. All right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome. Meg, you can find the show there on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show. We're on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. And you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. If you appreciate Sorta Awesome and its community of the awesomes, we'd love to have your support. Your $5 a month makes a huge difference for the production of this show. And you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash Sorta Awesome. Don't forget to pop over to wondery.com slash survey. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for you so you can help us get to know you a little bit better by taking that survey. It's super fast, I promise you. So thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life Sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.